You're listening to the Badass Lady Folk. My name is Christine Stoddard. I'm your host, as always, since 2016. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Today, my wonderful guest is Meredith Binder. Hi, Meredith. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. So how do I know Meredith? I know Meredith through the world of theater. We met in a show that I co-produced with Jess Appel at the Broadway Comedy Club. Uh, Meredith has been in my comedy show, Quail Tales. She's done uh, Cleansing Limpia, which was a workshop piece I had at Irondale. Uh, there's probably something I'm forgetting. But yeah, we've <laughs> already worked together a bunch in the past few months that we've known each other and it's been great or I guess half a year at this point <laughs> um but I wanted to talk to Meredith on the show not just for you know some insight into her acting and filmmaking work but really to focus on her first career in engineering so Meredith tell me how did you become a lady engineer <laughs> well I it really wasn't intentional um I was in college and I was um taking a physics class just you know pre-wec for whatever and the physics instructor was the only woman physics professor um granted this is 1979 at that point and she said to me well, you have potential. I'm going to ask my husband, who's an experimentalist, because she was a theorist, to give you a job in his lab. He hires a small number of undergraduates every year. And so she arranged this. Then the next thing you know, I was a physics major, and I'm not sure how that happened. If I had to be, but I, I didn't have any other ideas of what I wanted to do. So I became a physics major. Then I graduated, and I couldn't get a job. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided to get a master's degree in electrical engineering because I didn't have any better ideas. So this was all very um, just sort of life happened to me because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Huh. So what were you doing working in the lab? Oh, as an undergraduate, yes. I was building a scintillation counter or at least parts to be used as a scintillation counter. And then over uh, summer break. I don't know we went... what that is. What is that? Oh, okay. So um, we did our experiments at Brookhaven National Lab on Long Island, even though I was at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, and over school breaks, and particularly the summer, we'd go out there as a research team. And um, so you have the accelerator. We were doing um, elementary particle research on protons. And so the proton beam comes out of the accelerator and then it goes to the scintillation counter so we can take measurements on it, how fast it's going, what angles it's coming out at, and so on. And that's all great information to determining what the guts of a proton was back then. But uh, the professor was trying to defy the quark theory in favor of having some three different central charges that were concentric and uh, that was disproven so I did not go down in history ah okay I recognize many of the words that you said from high school don't really understand what you just explained to me but I'm happy that you tried to break it down thank you 
Oh, I'm so sorry about that. I usually try to make sure people understand, but I think the uh, guts of that story was I didn't get to go down in history. Yeah, yeah, no, I <laughs> I got that much. Well, hey, there's still time. Maybe not in engineering, but in the arts world. <laughs> okay, so you went for a master's in electrical engineering. Was that because of the work in the lab or... I know you said you didn't know what you wanted to do, but you, I mean, maybe you could have become a teacher, right? Or you could have done a master's in another kind of engineering. Well, um, not really. No, I, I probably could have, but, uh, the, when I was working at Brookhaven, I saw how isolated we were you know, physically and socially, people just camped out at this lab. And I felt like I, if I continued in physics, I wouldn't have any life. You know, I, I wanted to live in an urban area and, you know, raise kids and, and have access to the arts. And that just didn't seem like a life to me. So I was looking for something else, but, you know, along the way I graduated and I couldn't get a job. And I don't think there's that kind of prejudice anymore. I think you can get an engineering job with a physics degree now, but you couldn't back then. And so having, you know, a great uh, senior thesis project and, you know, high GPA and all that, that didn't matter. It would have been better to have neither of those and had the engineering degree. So I was like, well, uh, it will take less time to get a master's than another bachelor's. So mm -hmm. I will do that <laughs> yeah so do you think that the intention at that time with the physics undergrad was then to go for a PhD program in physics or something else like not not for you but why do you have any idea why that program would have been designed oh the undergraduate program mm -hmm. I was in yes um Michigan at the time was the third top physics school in the country. And the undergraduate program was very small. And so we took classes starting uh, starting junior year, all our classes were combined with the graduate students. So um, I don't know if the undergraduate program had any raison d'etre other than to provide a physics degree in a yeah, very yeah. large state university. But the graduate program was definitely geared toward academics. And we had people from all over the world in the program. It was bigger than the undergraduate program. Uh, so that was, those were the people I was with every day, taking classes with and studying with, uh, which was a great opportunity. But I think I was a little displaced because I really wasn't that serious about it. And um, when I went into electric engineering graduate school, I applied for the PhD program just in case I decided to stay. But that, once again, that wasn't my intention to be an academic. Hmm. So what was your first job in engineering? Oh, my goodness. My first job. <laughs> I, my husband and I had recently moved to Seattle. I was looking for a job. It was in the middle of a recession. And I finally found a job. Um, in this small residential neighborhood, this guy was working out of two garages with a parking lot in between them. So when my husband said, Meredith works out of a garage in Wallingford, I'd say, I work out of two garages, excuse me. Um, 
and we were taking ultrasonic measurements for, um, oh, now I'm going to get into the techno speech. I'm so sorry, Christine. No, it's but okay. We I don't have to understand it. It sounds good. Someone listening will understand what you're saying. I promise. Well, it was, we were taking measurements on ultrasonic fields from both um, medical devices and military devices and writing reports on the measurements so you'd know what the output was. And um, particularly for the medical devices, this was important in terms of regulatory reporting to places like the FDA and um, similar organizations in Europe and Japan. So um, that's where I got my start. And then I worked in ultrasound for about 10 years. Huh. Only I wasn't strictly medical ultrasound. I worked in diagnostic ultrasound. So we were building the machines that you would go in to have um, scans done. So you're also a mother. So <laughs> you, were you still doing this work when you became a mother? Oh, yeah. And what about it appealed to you? Or was it just kind of like, I need to feed my family, so I'm going to keep going in this field? Or did you start to love it? Oh, I don't think I ever loved it. Um, uh, there were times that I liked it when it was interesting and resented it when it wasn't. But uh, yeah, I, w I was raising a family. You know, we bought a house to raise the kids in for a while. We were sending the kids to private school because nothing's too good for our little brats, feeding them organic food, you know, all, those, all those things that you do and you can afford it and you have kids. Um, Yeah, so um, I think my favorite part of my job, though, was making making the sexist men look stupid in front of everybody. That was definitely Ooh, my favorite part. Yeah, I was going to get to, to those kinds of questions. All right, please tell us about the cavemen. <laughs> well, I think one of my favorite times, uh, this guy was rushing into my lab that I supervised. And he was demanding that, you know, my engineers get some data ready immediately for his project. And he didn't even need it right away. But he was uh, very upset about it. And I'm looking over some data and uh, he's standing over me. Ew. And I, it, like really creepy, like breathing down my neck. And I'm like, first of all, this isn't a turn on. Second of all, it's not helping me get this done. So he walked in and then one of my employees came in and I really needed to ask him a question because he had collected the data. And so I'm like, hey, I, you know, um, glad you're and I got to talk to you. And he goes, just a minute, let me grab a coffee. And, oh, wait, I forgot. I messed up the story. Backtrack. Okay, <laughs> so this guy's breathing down my neck. And I said, why don't you do something helpful? And he said, what can I do this helpful? I said, get me a coffee. Mm. Now, I'm not a coffee drinker. And so he goes, what kind do you want? Well, if he goes and gets coffee from the kitchen, that's not going to help me. It doesn't give me much time. But across the corporate campus, there was a Starbucks cart back <laughs> when Starbucks was new and only in Seattle those days. And so I said, uh, I just remembered my friend's order from over the weekend. I said, double tall, skinny decraft with hazelnut. <laughs> I didn't even, you know, whatever that means. And so he went out. So he was gone for a little while. And then he brings the thing, it's sitting next to me and he's breathing down my neck again. Then my employee comes in. I'm like, hey, come over here. I got to ask you a question. He goes, let me get a cup of coffee. And I said, that's okay. You can have mine. 
but don't you want it? And I said, no, I don't drink coffee. And the guy's just like, he's just looking like an idiot. <laughs> did he say anything or did he, he was, just, he was, no. oh, it went over his head. <laughs> yeah. I mean, usually people who like to present themselves as incredibly smart aren't. So yeah. that was his category. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Well, what else? I mean, this is, I'm curious about what other forms of blatant and not so blatant sexism you face while in the field, because I know uh, it's still a concern among. Oh, it was horrible. It, it, it was very horrible back in those days. I'm, I'm sure it's still a concern, but I'm not in the field anymore. Um, once I was presenting some data to the VP of engineering at a company I worked at and uh all of a sudden, there was something about the graph he didn't like. And he said, why the hell did you graph it that way? Ew. And it's, I'm the only woman in the room. There's all of the executive branch of the company there in front of all of these men. He says this to me. And I turned around and I stared at him. And I said, would you care to rephrase that? <sighs> it was dead. You could hear a pin drop. The, you could hear people going, <gasps> Yeah. And then somebody said CLM, which means career limiting move. Like I had just limited my career by not letting somebody treat me like crap in front of everybody, you know, and, and I just stood there and they goes, uh, but, uh, 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 no, I just want to know why you chose those colors. And I said, the colors were chosen randomly. I'd be happy to make a style guide and, um, and come up with a different coloring scheme. You yeah. can get back to that, you know, but it was just, I don't know why he was so testy that day, and but I couldn't let him talk that way to me in front of everybody else. Yeah, of course not. And good for you for standing up for yourself. I'll, a lot of people would be, a lot of women, right, are too intimidated to do it in those kinds of situations because, yeah, career-limiting move, sure. But you, I mean, in that moment, was this just like a, a knee-jerk reaction? Did you think, was there any kind of hesitation? Or do you think it was just like, look, I, I have to do this because if I don't stand up for myself, who's going to? Um, I had learned along the way that being nice was not what I wanted to be. Right. I wanted to be effective and I wanted to be respected. And, you know, if somehow my career was limited because I didn't want to be a people pleaser as American women are kind of trained to do, right. uh, that, would be, that would be okay with me. But I was not gonna put up with that. Um, and I think the worst situation I had, um, I kept trying to meet with this guy and he was playing games with me. Like he wouldn't show up or he'd keep putting it off to later in the day, try to ask me to come early or stay late. This so finally, was, sorry, this was a client or a supervisor or so this was this was a coworker. Okay. He was the head of software and I was running, I was managing a development project and I needed his input to finish just the schedule. I mean, this right, wasn't right. even a big deal. And uh, so he um, I'm looking around for him. He's not there. It's already 530. We were supposed to meet at five. I'd agreed to stay late. And you know, so I find him and he's in this scanning room, which is where the sonographers scan people's bodies to test things. And I guess he had a problem with his legs. So he decided he asked the sonographer to scan him, which people did 
you know, why go to the doctor if you don't have to, if your friend can mm-hmm. just like, so he's in there and he goes, it's okay, Meredith, come on in. And I was like, oh my God, this guy didn't show up again. He's treating me like crap because he thinks he can get away with it because I'm a woman. And now he's asking me to walk into a room where he undoubtedly will have his pants down because he's getting his legs scanned. Right. And so I said in a very loud voice, and we happen to be pretty close to the HR department. I said, no, I would rather talk to my engineers with their pants on. Oh, good for you. After that, whatever I wanted, he showed up on time. He gave me the, he was so afraid I was going to report this to HR. Yeah. So I understand that (laughs) there might be uh, confidentiality reasons why you can't go into any of this, but if you are comfortable and able, I'd love to hear about any interactions you've had with HR in a more general sense. Um, If you feel that HR does exist to support the corporation or if they're there for the employees, just any thoughts or experiences related to HR as a woman in engineering. Well, HR was my friend. There were a lot of women who worked there. Mm-hmm. There were mostly women working there. So um, they would have taken any claim I made very seriously. So the best thing was having that as the ultimate threat. And over the years, HR helped me hire and fire people and um, they and put on team building trainings and so on. So I've always had really good relationships with HR. I've been fortunate. Yeah, that's great to hear because I've definitely heard of not so great experiences with HR. So did you, I mean, you already mentioned a couple instances where you really spoke up for yourself. You were assertive. Um, What about when it came to dressing for work, um, presenting yourself in in visual ways, physical ways, things with body language? Did you feel like you had to um, make yourself smaller or less noticeable in some ways? Or was it the opposite? You were just going to take up as much space as possible? Uh, Power suit every day. Mm. (laughs) And uh, hair up or pinned back, you know, and um, dress like your boss's boss, dress better than your boss's boss. Um, I had to walk in and have people know that I'm high enough up on the food chain that you don't want to mess with me. And, uh, I loved it because I would have like seven suits in my closet and various blouses and accessories and things so that I could look a little different every day. And, um, I didn't have to think about what I was going to wear. So I loved it. And most of the other women at work did the same in engineering anyway, did the same thing. And uh, sometimes we'd meet and have lunch together in the cafeteria. And you'd just see this table of women in power suits and the men would not be at any of the tables around us. They would always be like a distance away. (laughs) They're really intimidated by us. (laughs) That's great. Do you feel like you had male allies, advocates, people who did stand up for you in instances where you were not being taken seriously? Um, well, I, I don't know as I had ever had a situation where I had to go to my boss or someone else in the company and say, hey, I'm not being taken seriously. Nobody's listening to me. But I had I always I had great bosses. 
yeah, I mean, I know this is just contrary to what a lot of people experiences a lot of people have, but um, I'm a self-starter. I don't like, obviously don't like people breathing down my neck. Um, just give me the problem and I'll figure out how to solve it. And I will come to you when I need help. And so I would always end up working for people who are really hands-off bosses. But then when you come and you say, hey, I really need your help on this. Um, our department hasn't been considered in this project, so we don't have enough money allocated or we don't have, we need to hire more people and start training them. Whatever I needed, you know, a bigger gun for to go out and get this for me to be successful or our department to be successful. My bosses have always taken me seriously and gone out and helped me get what I needed to be successful. So, um, and they've always paved um, paths for me to get promotions and Oh, they've always, I've been very open about my career aspirations and they always help me. I mean, once again, very lucky the people in charge, my boss, the HR department were always very supportive. But back then it was really hard to find women in engineering. Right. So you know, they needed my face on the product, I guess. So what do you think? I mean, you talked about the power dressing and speaking up for yourself and not letting people take advantage of you. But do you think there were other qualities or strategies that you had that maybe helped you as a woman and and made some of these bosses more uh, likely to promote you, help you out? Um. I'm I sure think it wasn't having, all luck, right? No, um, I would never take a job working for someone if I didn't think it was going to work. Um, and the jobs I tended to get called in for, they started with a test, just skills test. And then you would go in and have a group interview and they would present, you'd sign an NDA and they present some problem that they were working on internally. And they, they would ask you questions that they couldn't solve themselves. And um, so, so instead of being intimidated by it, because they can't solve it themselves, and these people interviewing me, they're gonna be my bosses. So this is, um, this is not going to be a problem if I can't get it right. So for me, it was fun. It was like, let's solve this puzzle together. And I would share my ideas and then, um, I would ask them, so this is as far as I got. So once I get here, I'm not sure if I should do this or this. And then they jump in and, and you're working together already. And that's how I presented myself. And if that wasn't what they wanted, I wouldn't get invited back for a second round of interviews. But if that's what they wanted, I pretty much had the job there, right then and there. Hmm. Did you ever during these interviews maybe get as far as that but someone didn't pass a sniff test like you anticipated there might be a clash of personalities somebody just didn't seem respectful yes uh one company i interviewed for um one of the people interviewing started telling me about the people in the company that they didn't like and how hard that was. And I thought that was very unprofessional. Also, uh, people in the company seemed to be very showy. I just did this. I just did that. Yeah. And um, people didn't seem like they were comfortable there. They seemed like they were always on edge, always afraid something was at stake, maybe their job. I don't know. But I declined the second round of interviews. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's wonderful that you mentioned that because when I've had uh, just different students in my life ask me or younger people, younger than me, ask for career advice, that's something that I always mention. You don't want to work someplace where everyone seems scared and uncomfortable um, because, yeah, if you go there, you're just going to internalize that fear and... It's not going to be fun. <laughs> okay. So I'm also curious about how your role as a parent came into your engineering life. So do you feel like you were, oh, this is not a yes or no. And let me make this question more open-ended. How were you treated as a mother while an engineer? Like if you needed time off or or like maternity leave, just anything um, where, where you had to be there for your kids. Do you think that you got the same kinds of treatment as your male colleagues or no? Well, most of the men I worked with had a stay home wife, uh -huh. their children. So that made it difficult. Fortunately, once again, the HR departments and my bosses who were all men, um, they they really wanted to work with me on it. When I took maternity leave from one job, um, I got uh, this you know stuffed animal in the mail from my boss, which was very sweet of him. And he's like, please come back. You know, and I heard that he had been in my office setting up, he'd asked me, we're upgrading computers, what do you want? And I selected a computer. And it was sort of back then you didn't have just a laptop very often or not one that was very popular. So I had like a docking uh, station for a laptop and a couple of different screens. And I just went to town with what I wanted, figuring I'll see if I what I get. Apparently he had been in my office setting up my computer while I was on maternity leave. And when I came back, people said, oh, he really missed you. <laughs> he was in your office all day setting this thing up. Oh, <laughs> He was also trying to lure you back, right? Well, oh, he was you... afraid I would want more time than the company allowed. And then yeah, I would just get another job. I don't think he was afraid that I would just quit to quit, but that, right. you know, would decide that was what was best for my family. And he would make jokes like he would say, you know, I, I he would say something about his child and something about his wife. And I'm like, hmm, yeah. And he goes, you know, wives are wives are really good. You should think for <laughs> you know, gay marriage was legal and all that. But it was just like an acknowledgement that um, that I was in a tough situation at times. Yeah. Did you ever bring your kids to work? Oh my God, yes. Both my the daycare shut down at one point because all of the children had something that was you weren't supposed to let your kids go. I don't even remember what it was, but uh, I I didn't have, my husband wasn't in a situation to stay home. It was before my mother-in-law moved to Seattle because then she became my secret weapon. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, so I brought the kids to work and I booked conference rooms by the hour. And then one of my employees had a stepdaughter who was suspended from school for bringing alcohol to school. Mm. So um, 
I hired this little alcoholic and <laughs> to babysit my children. Like, where else would you do that? Except she's in this corporation. Not much can happen. And um, so, and, and they would move from conference room to conference room with the sleeping bags and the toys and the snacks and everything. And I would go check in on them every half hour. God, stressful. One of the worst days of my life, yes. Yeah, I can only imagine. Do you have any advice for women who uh, might be trying to get pregnant and are a little bit nervous about discussing maternity leave with their employer? Well, um, I would say hold off telling anybody as long as you can. I mean, if you're not showing, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And it may not happen if, if you don't get to that point in the pregnancy, which I'm very right. sorry to say, but um, I, I believe the statistics are that one out of three initial pregnancies do miscarry. So that's just a normal part of life. So don't get people anxious about something that may or may not happen. And in business, you really can't make plans for nine months out. You just can't. And so they, they don't, don't give them too much time to think about it. And then you just say, I'm, this is when I'm going. This is how long I'll be gone. I'll be available for phone calls and, um, you know, and let them know, make a plan is the other thing. Who's going to take over which parts of your responsibility while you're gone. Don't stress over it. They won't do it because they have their own jobs, but at least you look responsible because you've made plans <laughs> and um, yeah, just do your thing. If you have a strong enough HR department and, um, a boss who's a normal human being, you shouldn't have a problem, you know, but if you don't have that, it's, and people, people are going to say things, you know, if I was late for work, at a doctor's appointment, it'd be like, oh yeah, you women, you're weak or whatever. I'm like, you know, I can't be that woke. I'm, I'm building a baby. I'd like to see <laughs> you try to do that. Yeah. Opposite <laughs> of weakness. <laughs> Once I walked into the lab and a bunch of my employees were talking about, oh, when I got this injury, it was the worst pain I ever had or that injury or whatever. And I walked in the lab and I said, they didn't see me walk in. I said, childbirth the first time. Ooh. And that, that just like, okay, yeah, she's got it. She won. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Similar question. Are there things that women should think about before coming back to work after maternity leave? Like things that might've surprised you, any tips that you have? Um, depending on uh, how quickly you recover, which I had one pregnancy where I just popped right back and the next one, not so lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, don't schedule yourself to be working a lot of overtime. You know, just, just leave when the day is over. I mean, you've, you've got something else you've got to do. And a lot of the overtime that you work, um, you don't need to. Right. It's, these deadlines often are more flexible than you think. And it's not like if you don't get it done. If Find out when your deadlines are hard deadlines and when they're not. And just don't sweat the ones that aren't. Yeah, that's great advice. Just in general. <laughs> For life. <laughs> okay, great. I want to hear about Peace Corps. So oh, yes. we're an engineer, you did Peace Corps. Tell me all about that. Well, I finished graduate school. So I had this master's degree in electrical engineering and my husband was working um, 
as an architect. And I went out on his job interview at IBM and it was, it was strange. I think it was a new building. They hadn't really done much with it, but it all day was taking tests and walking around, shaking hands in this really ugly office park. And then at the end, the guy who was my host for most of the day takes me to an empty cubicle. It was empty. And he says to me, this could all be yours. Wow. And I went home and I said to my husband, I am not mature enough to be an adult. We are joining the Peace Corps. <laughs> I don't want this empty cubicle to be my future. <laughs> I love that he thought that was appealing. <laughs> Okay, so what was the next step after telling your husband you wanted to join? Well, we it was a long process to fill. Yeah, I hadn't, I guess I hadn't quite, I finished the degree but uh, and presented my research, but I was then writing a technical report for NASA because NASA had funded my project. So I still had to write the technical report and I was still teaching some classes at the university. So uh I was doing that when we were waiting to hear from the Peace Corps and we just weren't hearing and we weren't hearing. Uh, about how long was that? How many months would you say? It was about seven months before we got yeah. played. Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally different process now, but back then you couldn't, you didn't apply to a job. You just applied to the organization and they would tell you what your job was and you could say yes or no. You had oh, no wow. idea where in the world you were going. It was a very different organization what? back then. Yeah, but, and how you rank your top three countries and blah, blah, blah. Wow. So you had no idea. What? No, they they called. Um, I was home when they called. It was the middle of the day. And we had heard some rumors we might be going somewhere in West Africa. So we started taking a French class in the evening and kind of getting excited about that. And then they said, uh, that fell through. Um and they didn't tell me why, and they wouldn't tell me when I asked. And they said, but um, we've got another position for you. Uh, it's in Fiji. Do, do you want the job? And I said, yes. Yeah. And they said, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, where's Fiji? Uh <laughs> and then that night, George and I went to the library and researched, because it was before we had the internet, researched right. Fiji. Um, but we, he and I decided wherever they send us, we're just going to say yes, because it's been seven months. We either have to do this or get going on whatever else we're going to do instead. Wow. So how much time did you have to prepare before you actually went there? Uh, we had about four months. I mean, it, it was out of ways. And then... Uh, the and what did you what did you do to prepare with those four months? Sold everything we owned, put a few things in storage, went to visit our families, um, got uh, recommendations for people to put in a file at the university so that I would have them when I got back. Of course, the university lost them, so that didn't end up wow. helping. Uh, say goodbye to friends. Um, yeah, we were kind of just, uh, we sold everything, packed up a few things, and then we um, 
you know, we're homeless. We were just, I shouldn't say homeless. We were just vagabonds. We were staying with various people and driving around the country to say goodbye. We went to um, a couple weddings on the way, you know, and then we ended up in Chicago, which is where we were flying out of. Hmm. And then how long were you there? Two years? Uh, two and a half years because we had training. And then when we finished our service, we stayed on for a, about a month and a half, just finishing up some other projects we had. Nice. And stayed with friends in the village because we lost our housing because we weren't serving in the Peace Corps anymore. Ah, uh, so what exactly did you do to serve? Well, I was teaching high school math and physics to subsistence farmers and fishermen. Hmm. Uh, and the kids were not, like when you ask them a question and they answer in English, it sounds like they're very proficient. They really speak English. And then after two weeks, I gave them a quiz and they all were smiling and they all wrote their names on the paper. And they do this weird thing where they take a, a ruler and they draw the lines on the line paper. It was very strange. Mm -hmm. And then they turned that and they turned that in because they really didn't understand anything I had said in the past two weeks. And so I took a deep breath and I started over again in my very bad, very American accented Fijian. God, but were the children just too polite to ask questions or, or admit that they didn't understand what you were saying? Like what culturally do you think prevented you from finding out they didn't understand you at least well enough to do this? Uh, yeah, there is definitely, um, they have a chiefly system. So someone who has higher status, you you just are polite and go with whatever they're doing. So a teacher oh. and a student would have that. So that was part of it. Um, so they couldn't say, excuse me, madam. They called me madam. Excuse me, madam. I, um, you know, I don't, I don't understand or, or could you speak more slowly? So they, they didn't feel able to do that but they really hadn't understood anything and you know I remember saying do you understand and they said yes and oh. I said do you, and, and they looked a little like maybe they didn't and I said do you want me to explain it again and they said yes madam oh it, so I knew something was going on so then like the next day I gave them a quiz and then I was like oh okay this is not going to work I'm going to have to do this in Fijian so then I had to ask um the other teachers who were Fijian and only some of them were, some were Chinese and Asian Indian because Fiji's a multicultural country uh, or uh, friends in the village. Uh, there was a retired uh, school teacher who was like 90 and uh, I would go and ask him for vocabulary and how to say certain things. So I was getting better at Fijian rapidly because I had to. How were you learning Fijian? Through immersion or did you go take classes? Oh, there's no classes <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a language that 350,000 people speak I mean yeah so, so it's just by living there yeah well because I would go see the teacher uh the retired school teacher and the other teachers I worked with sometimes would help me one of the teachers was my neighbor on the school compound so I'd go over and I would say how do you say this how do I say that and they were fluent in English so they could trans and they were teachers so they could translate it for me and I kept thinking okay when I was studying French in high school we learned a sentence structure and then we swapped in 
nouns and verbs and things. So I need to get certain sentence structures. So I think having studied a foreign language in the past really helped me organize my own learning. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. What were some of the culture shocks while you were there? Oh my gosh, so many, so, so many. I mean, we're coming from the States and we're in a third world village. So, so many things. Um, at one point, this is way before Harry Potter, uh, I was speaking to the vice principal who seemed to be fluent in English and he was telling me how they were dividing the children up into houses and they would work on these houses and whoever had the, and they would get points on their work and whoever had the most points would win. And I said, are the houses on the school compound? And he said, yes. And I said, like my house. And he said, yes. And so I gave him a list of repairs I needed done to my house that I was staying on at the compound. And what he meant was I would be the head of a house as the right. teacher advisor. And these would be houses like in Harry Potter and they would compete against it. I had no concept of that because I'm an American, but he didn't understand that English isn't English, 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 wherever. Like he had studied in Australia and he right. just, it just didn't occur to him that as an American, I might not know something like that. He never spoke another word of English to me. <laughs> <laughs> wait what was his reaction when you gave him the list of repairs he was so confused <laughs> he was so confused and he took a deep breath and then he's just like trying you don't understand the children will make the houses and I'm like so but now we're speaking for G and I'm like oh so they're gonna build the house <laughs> and he's like what do you mean build and I said you know with wood and nails no 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 and so then uh, he started using, instead of trying to dumb down the Fijian, he used the actual words like, um, like sometimes they use the word land or house to mean a group of people as they do in British English. Um, but I'm not British. Right. So it, it just didn't, I, so we're speaking different kinds of English. And um and I think that that was something that never occurred to him was that I wouldn't understand his English. Mm -hmm. So we got it sorted out once we we're speaking Fijian. <laughs> well, that makes me wonder what was access to TV and movies like there? Oh, there was. Okay. This was before the internet. Right. And there was no, there, there were some generators generating electricity, but there wasn't regular electricity. Okay. So people were not I, watching American sitcoms. Well, the only way they would see a movie at all is if somebody had a generator, they ran it and they had a VCR. Right. So only the chiefs would have that um, yeah. at all. Even, even they might not. So um, there, so there were no movies in town. We had a market town that had one movie theater and we took the kids to see a movie there and it was about a boy who didn't have legs. And every time the boy came on the screen, they would start laughing. Oh no. And I didn't know why, or if a character cried, they would laugh. And so it was embarrassed laughter. You know, oh, like if somebody's yeah. talking potty talk or something, we might laugh, not because it's funny. I mean, we're not two years old. This isn't funny, but because we're embarrassed. So right. it was, um, it was that kind of thing. They were embarrassed because you just don't express emotion. You don't, what? nobody thinks you express emotion like that. 
Right. Do you remember what country the movie was from? Or what it was from the States. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it was an American movie. And um, then afterwards, uh, one of the teachers was talking um, about it with another teacher. And I overheard him say, yeah, I didn't really understand it. It was so strange to see this boy without legs. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's what he didn't understand. I think what he didn't understand was why people were just crying. Mm-hmm. And why they were all talking about the boy who didn't have legs, like, and trying to do something about it. Whereas in Fiji, if you've got a, if you've got a handicap or um, you're differently abled in any way, you just are. And that's Mm -hmm. it because back then there wasn't any medical help. Now I haven't been, I went back to visit 10 years after we served and then two years again after that for a particular event. And then I haven't been back. Hmm. So I haven't you been back served... in about 25 years. Oh, so you served during been... the 80s, correct? I served the late 80s, yeah. Okay, okay. We got out in 1990. <laughs> got out. <laughs> I want to know about the food. Oh, God. How do you feel about starchy root crops? What? What about seafood? Well, we, I lived in a mangrove swamp. So they dug out the critters from the mangrove swamp and I didn't eat them. Um, Just a strange thing I have. Um, I grew up in sort of a semi-kosher home and we didn't eat pork and shellfish. And I just, I never have. There's something that just feels like it's unclean to me because that's what I was told when I was a kid. But, you know, I, if somebody brought over a ham and cheese sandwich, wanted to eat it at my house, I'd be fine with that. I just... I'm not going to eat it myself or buy it, you know? And so I didn't eat it, but my husband, he ate like everything. Cause like they would serve him pork or they would serve him that. And he got very sick Hmm. and finally he stopped and he said, kosher dietary laws make a lot of sense when there's no refrigeration, which is how they came to do. So, uh, we, we weren't eating that so much. Um, they have two spices, salt and, um, roquette the um chili this chili pepper thing that came when the indians arrived in fiji they brought some spices with them and they the roquette was something that the fijians adopted and that's it so before the indians arrived they just had salt so this mm-hmm. these are not like meals to be remembered um right. they do wonders with coconut cream mm-hmm. that's for sure you know you grind the coconut up and squeeze out the rich cream um so that's always nice. Um, and then these root crops, they just, that's what they really fill up on. And they're like these really dense things like taro root with yes. extra starch and more dense and purpley. And then something that's sort of like a sweet potato, but it's extra dense with more starch. And then something that they eat when the farm floods, it doesn't flood. And it's like this bright green color with tons of starch and super, super dense. And you have to cook it forever before you can eat it. Um, they have tapioca you know just things like that and and that's what they really fill up on and then the greens from that they'll uh boil in the coconut cream and families will eat that for dinner every night oh wow and um you know and then occasionally fish or canned meat or if there's a feast they'll slaughter pigs and cows you know a feast for uh usually for a chief if one of them dies Mm. Uh, one of them's born something like that so it's um 
you know, the diet is pretty limited and all the Peace Corps volunteers, we would always talk about, well, one of the biggest problems is food variety. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when they had fruit that came in seasons, like they twice a year, the mandarin oranges would come out and everybody would be walking around eating mandarin oranges because we were just dying for something that tasted different that we hadn't been eating all day. Right. Okay. Well, what would you do for fun? Or were you spending so much time preparing for these math and science lessons that there wasn't a lot of downtime? Um, we would, we were adopted by a family in the village. Um, the grandmother in the family uh, was a high chief and she was in a unique position because she married a farmer from a different province. So, and being a female chief is not the same as being a male chief. So she could adopt me. And, and she would, when she talked to people, and she talked, she called me her daughter and I became her youngest daughter in her family. She had three daughters. And um, so I was friends with them. And when my husband was traveling for work, it wasn't safe for me to stay alone. So I would stay with them. And one of her granddaughters, Bale, became my kid. And I would take her with me if I went shopping without my husband so that there wouldn't be gossip about me going into town to meet other men. Oh. I'd, I'd bribe her with an ice cream cone. And um, when we got to town, you know, if there wasn't ice cream in the village, there was no refrigeration. So she'd get to come into town and get an ice cream and hang out with me. And um, so she was five and six when I was there, four, five and six when I was there. And I used to carry her when she got tired and I was taking her on this trip to the market town and everybody laughed at me. They said, they would call her, you're Marita's big baby. Cause you don't carry a kid once they're that age in Fiji. Cause you've got another one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So with the acknowledgement that the program has changed since then. Oh yeah. What general advice do you have for anyone, especially women who might be interested in doing Peace Corps today? Do it. I, my, I can't imagine my life if I hadn't served in the Peace Corps. It changes the way I read the newspaper. I mean, uh, it's really a crash course in developing countries and bad politics and um, colonialism and tribalism and all these things that um, it's so rare to ever have the opportunity to experience firsthand. Yeah. All right, we don't have a ton of time left, but I do want to talk a little bit about your filmmaking and your acting, this whole other career. So tell me how you started making films and how you started acting in other people's projects. Well, um, my mother-in-law decided that I should do something once a week just for me and she would take the kids. So um, I saw the sign up, acting lessons, and uh, I thought, okay, I, I think I'd like to try that. So I took a class and first day of class, the instructor gave us Stanislavski's definition of acting, um, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. And that really captured my imagination. And I thought, I wanna do that. Yeah, I, I would really like to do that. Um, so I started taking classes and I got more and more interested in it. And so I was walking around with, you know, Chekhov and Shepard and all this stuff in my bag that I was bringing to work so I could read it in the van pool on the way home. You know, I just, I became fascinated with it. 
but I didn't really have time to be in um, to be in stage productions because I had to be home with the kids. So uh, a friend of mine came over and said, "Hey, this guy across town is making a movie. It, there's so many roles in it. You got to go. I just auditioned. Here's a script. Go audition. I'll watch your kids go." And so I went and auditioned, and I got the lead role. Wow. Now I was a lot younger and cuter back then, but I got the lead role. This was some hot chick who um, was an intergalactic drug trafficker. And she had a boyfriend on every planet, but a girlfriend on Venus. And she just did everything illegal on Earth. And it was so much fun to play this character. And so I started getting some roles doing that. And then I got an idea for a film. After that film, which, you know, we were on set every day. I had to take time off from work. We were on set every day for three weeks. So it was very fast to do a feature. Um, Working directly since there were two, me and my main boyfriend from Earth. Hmm. He and I were the main characters. So we uh, spent time like right with the crew and had lunch with the crew and, and talked to them. So it demystified what making a film was. So I got this idea for a film. Um a black and white slapstick comedy because I'm a big Buster Keaton fan. And uh, I found the guy who wanted to direct it, the, the crew, they, they came on the um, producer lent us all of his equipment. Cause it had just been in the hands of these people who he had hired mm. and trusted. So for no money, I make this film that went all over the world and then it got distribution on a compilation on Netflix and, um, you What's know, it the was, name of it? Rents do. It's on. Um, it's on YouTube now. <laughs> nice. So you oh, can still watch it. I can send you the link. Yeah. Um, when was it on Netflix? Oh or gosh, uh, twenty years ago. I mean, I yeah, know, yeah, yeah. It. yeah. On a DVD. Uh, yeah, it was on a DVD. Absolutely. Um, and it was just. It, it was so great to have this idea and then see it realized so well. And be able to share it with the world was was so great. So I was hooked. But making films is a lot of work, and you really have to have the right team behind you. So I've over the years kind of stopped doing that, even though I'd like to do it again. But I just I've got to have the right team. Yeah, with yeah. all the logistics involved, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and it's like I'm not a cinematographer. I'm not really an editor either. Um, you know, I can do like a first pass, but then um, somebody who knows what they're doing has to take over. So I'm not a composer. I mean, and that all affects the quality and your ability to even tell your stories. So if you don't have the right team, there's no point in filming it. So I've got like four feature scripts and a number of shorts just sitting on my disk drive. You know, it's I don't have a way to make it right now. Yeah. What advice do you have for folks who, and again, especially women, who want to start making films, especially if they don't have formal education or training in it? Yeah, Yeah, well, that was me. Um, I got lucky that with that first film because um, everybody just worked for me for free and used the same equipment and I got a location. I needed a laundromat. I got somebody who let us crawl in and out of the dryers. I mean, it was unreal. But I, Like luck just dropped in my lap. And that was a magical one. And then my second film, uh, 
don't show it to anybody ever. Third film, that was pretty good, uh, but the color was a disaster. I, I mean, I couldn't show it to anybody until somebody agreed to finally fix the color for me. Hmm. And it was a guilt offer because I'd been cast in a lead role in a film. And uh, then at the last minute, somebody donated money if she could have that role. And Weird. nobody, oh, it happens all the time. So then nobody uh, told me. So as a first AD, he had to tell me. And he felt so bad that he had to tell me that. And it turned out that he's a guy who's a colorist too. So he, mm-hmm. um, so he did the color timing and fixed it. And then I could send it out to, you know, so there was a piece of luck in absolutely everything that made these films happen. And after a while, the luck stopped happening. Hmm. And now what would you say your focus as an actor or writer, how, how would you define yourself primarily as an actor right now? Right now, um, well, I would like to be making films if I had the team. Right. And without being able to realize the project, I've kind of stopped writing. So so I guess I'm acting now. Um, I work with you, obviously, Quail Tales. And then um, I'm a member of Theater 68. And uh, we do about three shows, three, four shows a year. And then I've got... uh, Rep, reps in New York, Atlanta, and Seattle still. So I audition all the time for TV shows and films. Um, and occasionally I actually get one. <laughs> yeah. All right, Meredith, thank you so much for your time and sharing your varied experiences and inspirations. It's been wonderful having you and getting to know you a little bit better, and especially all about the engineering i still i find it fascinating even if i don't understand a lot of the technicalities you've been listening to the badass lady folk i'm your host christine stoddard you can find us on radio free brooklyn and by us i mean me (laughs) every friday at 9 a.m thanks and tune in next time 